You're listening to the Faith Roots Audio Podcast with Pastor Willie George. You can watch the full video version of this episode and join the conversation with your comments on the Faith Roots YouTube channel. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Now, here's Pastor Willie George with today's message. Hello, welcome to our series, The End from the Beginning. We're going into an all-new sequence. We started out with the Paradise sequence, which is Genesis chapters 1 and 2. Then we went to the Dominion sequence, which would be uh, Genesis chapter 3. It's where uh, Adam lost his dominion, and we see the restoration and regaining of that dominion in the latter part of the book of Revelation, and we see the Paradise in Revelation chapters 21, 22. So you see the reversal of these things. Uh, Then you come to the next sequence, which would be the Cain and Abel sequence, and basically what you have is the picture of the Antichrist. And a lot of people don't think of Cain as being a type or shadow of the Antichrist. If you didn't listen to that one, I suggest you go back to it because there are so many amazing parallels to Antichrist. Yes, there are other characters in the Old Testament who are pictures of Antichrist, but the first of them is Cain, and he fits the bill perfectly. So I'd encourage you to go to that. Now, after the Antichrist, we come into the flood. This is Noah's time. And uh, what I believe that this is a picture of is the rapture of the church. And uh, that's what we see in the story of Noah. It is a fitting picture. In fact, Christ linked all of this together. But before we get into it, let's go to our text, which is Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10. God says, I'll reveal the end from the beginning. From ancient times, I reveal what is to be. So God says in the earliest pages of Scripture, He says, I declared what would happen at the end of the age. Uh, You see this one little prophecy in Jude where he says, I saw the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. Now, Jude was the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote in the church age, but he's quoting Enoch. And Enoch, in the earliest days, uh, right during the time of Cain, right around that time, Enoch would have seen this program of God. And he said, I saw the Lord coming with ten thousands of his saints. Then listen to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. The thing that has been is that which shall be, and that which is done is that which shall be done, and there is no new thing under the sun. In other words, uh, all we are seeing is repetitions of something that happened earlier. Now, in many cases, the things that happened earlier were merely shadows. These are the big events at the end of the age, and they're much bigger because the stakes are higher. Because we're talking about uh, 8 billion people on planet Earth. We're talking about the possibility of the salvation, not just of millions of people, but of tens of millions, hundreds of millions of people have the capacity to come to Christ in this age. And so the stakes are a lot higher. So those ancient figures, while they may be more celebrated in many ways, uh, they only shadowed what we're seeing today because the impact is so much greater. Now, it was Christ who linked Noah to the catching away of the church and to his return for it. Luke chapter 17, verses 26, 27. By the way, Jesus on a number of occasions gave little bits and pieces 
uh, uh, and hence he said, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I'll come again and receive you to myself. Those are the words that a groom would say to his espoused bride before they consummated their marriage. He would go home and work on the house, and that's found in John chapter 14. It's a wonderful picture of the rapture. There's not a lot of detail there, but it does tell us that Christ is going to return to come for his bride in a way that the groom would come to get his bride, and it's a total surprise, and that's the the whole thing that makes it work. Is it's a surprise? It's a there. It's a it's a a seizure, if you would. He goes in and kidnaps the wife. Basically, uh, he gives her a little bit of time to prepare. Right at the end, just before he gets there, the friend of the bridegroom comes and lets her have some idea that uh, the 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 groom is coming, and so uh, you can see the 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 people that the Lord uses to get us ready for this coming of Christ uh, are already in place. And there have been thousands of them proclaim this message, so much so that it creates mockers. And uh, in fact, the scripture says in Second Peter, there will be people who will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. You know what that tells me? It tells me that there have been a lot of people making predictions about the coming of the Lord and probably getting it wrong, obviously getting it wrong. And uh, they are mocked for it. So even that is a fulfillment of Scripture. And so there will be a friend of the bridegroom suggesting that his coming is very, very near. Now listen to what uh, Luke records in chapter 17, verses 26-27. As it was in the days of Noah, so will it be also in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now, oh, probably 23, 24 years ago, anyway, in the late 90s, especially in 99, all the rage around the country in the church world was Y2K. And so many people were uh, afraid of what was going to happen. Loads of prophecy teachers bought into the idea that there was going to be a big meltdown. I remember as a pastor that I very boldly stood up and told people, this is not going to happen. There will be no global meltdown because of Y2K. If we are in the last days, as the scriptures suggest, if we are there, there won't be a meltdown, and I'm going to base it on what Jesus himself said about the time of his return. And here's what he said. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage. Later on in that same chapter, he compares it to the time of Lot, where they bought, they sold, they built, they planted. All of those things describe a vibrant economy. Will there be hiccups along the way? Yes, there will be hiccups along the way. But we will not see complete global meltdowns. I'm saying to you that there will be business as usual because Jesus said in the day that he returns, on that day, they ate, they drank, they married wives, and they were given in marriage. Now, we have so many television shows today about young women who get married and where they get married and how they get married and all the different elements of their weddings. It is a big, expensive thing to marry off a daughter. I've had to do it for two. 
And I can tell you that it was not an easy thing to do. And many of you can attest to that. It costs money. It suggests that there is a booming economy when the Lord returns. He's the one who said it. So with all boldness and confidence, I stuck my neck out. Not really too hard, though and said there won't be an economic meltdown. And there were guys selling dried food and all kinds of stuff like that. Don't listen to people like that. Listen to me. Jesus himself said about these days, Occupy till I come. That's how we roll. We do business as usual. You don't plan on the return of Christ financially. You don't begin to say, okay, I think we've got another five years. Let's watch our investments here. You don't plan like that. You occupy till he comes. I am planning to go on with sound financial practices, business practices, organizational things. I'm, I'm planning as if Jesus is not coming in my lifetime. I hope that he does. I think that he will, but... I am doing what he said do, which is occupy till I come. Now, I am ready, and I am looking for his return, but at the same time, I'm not factoring that into all of my financial decisions. I factor it into my spiritual decisions, but not into my financial and organizational decisions. And I hope you understand the difference of that. Now, the flood of Noah was a divine intervention of both judgment and redemption. Understand this. It's a spiritual law that anytime you see redemption in the Bible, you will also see a companion element, which is judgment. Judgment and redemption live next door to each other. Remember that. Anytime you see redemption, you're going to see judgment and vice versa. They're always connected. What is redemption for some becomes judgment for others. Think about the Red Sea. It was redemption for the children of Israel, but it was judgment for Pharaoh and his army. Daniel in the lion's den. Redemption for Daniel, judgment for 122 men and their families who conspired to have him killed in the lion's den. Esther and Haman. It is redemption for the Jewish people, it is destruction for Haman, his sons, and all of the anti-Semitic people who lived in the Persian Empire who rose up to kill Jews on the day that Haman had secured permission to kill them. So you see the two of these things together. You, you can't have one without the other. Remember this. Anything that is one-sided is a counterfeit. If you were to walk down the street and you see a $100 bill laying on the sidewalk and you think, this is my lucky day, and with printers that are out there nowadays, it's amazing what a good job uh, some of these copy machines can do. But when you pick up that bill and turn it over and it's blank on the backside, it's counterfeit. In order for it to be genuine, it has to have two sides. A coin is the same thing. There has to be a tail not just ahead. And so listen to what the book of Acts chapter 24 and 25 have to say. This is a description of Paul's engagement with Felix, who was a ruler in, uh, in uh, Israel uh, during the time of Paul's imprisonment. Now, as he reasoned, this is talking about Paul, about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment 
to come. Now think about that. That's a, a, a really three statements there. Righteousness, that's what God has done for us. That's the mercy side of God. Self-control, that's our response to it. And judgment, that's something that God does. So you see the two sides of the coin with a piece of meat in the middle. Uh, Felix was afraid. And he answered, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call for you. There are a lot of people who cannot bring themselves to accept any thoughts of judgment from Christ. And that's a, that's a shame. A lot of people in the church today that are doing that. They preach acceptance only. They never talk about accountability and judgment. These people who may have started out accurately become counterfeits. They are counterfeit communicators. They are not in righteousness any longer. They do not communicate the truth. I don't care how much they talk about kind, tender, loving Jesus. When you take the judgment out of the picture, and that doesn't mean we're to be heavy-handed and gloomy. It doesn't mean that at all. But there is responsibility, and we are going to have to face a righteous Christ. And that's what Paul was preaching to Felix. All right. Now the flood came at a time when there wasn't just a need for redemption, there had to be some judgment. And I want to read to you from the book of Genesis. I want to show you a parallel to our day here. It begins in chapter 6 and verse 1. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. So this is during the time of a huge population explosion for the ancient world that daughters were born to men and the, or to the to to the men and of course women and the sons of god saw that the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose and the lord said my spirit shall not strive with man forever for he is indeed flesh yet his days shall be 120 years I will comment on that briefly in just a second. Then there were giants in the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. And verse 5 says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Uh, so we see... There is a tampering with the DNA of humanity because uh, giants didn't just come about because godly men, the sons of God, married wicked women. That is not what's being spoken here. There's a term in Hebrew. It appears six times in the Old Testament. It is Benai Ha Elohim. Benai Ha Elohim. And it means literally the sons of God. That term in the Old Testament is never used of a human being. In every context, everything points to an angelic being. This is where we see it introduced, the sons of God. It's not talking about godly men or the sons of Seth. Lots of biblical interpreters have tried to say that. But if that were the case... Where do the giants come from? And there were giants. And the scriptures talk about these giants. The children of Israel encountered these giants. And the giants were on the earth even before the flood. And so what was the purpose? The purpose was to pollute the human race. Now let's take a look at this and see if we can see some evidence. Now before I get into that, I'm going to have to address verse 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. There is a definite article there. And remember the word man in Hebrew is Adam, 
when there is an article along with it, the Adam is talking about the one guy, the first guy. And this is what it's saying. The Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with the Adam forever, for he is indeed flesh. He too is flesh, just like everybody else, even though he was created by me. He's still flesh, yet his day shall be 120 years. God says, my spirit's been striving with him all this time. Adam hadn't gotten things right. And so he's 810 years old when this statement is made, and he has another 120 years added on to his life. And in that time, God wanted to deal with him and bring him around to repentance. And there isn't any record that he did. Hope he did, but there isn't any record of it. So that's what that verse is talking about. For a, a lot of people suggest that this means that it took Noah 120 years, years to build the ark, and that's not true. Uh, but, but anyway, the point is, is that God is dealing with the Adam. Now, let's take a look at these sons of God characters. Uh, Jude chapter 6, and remember Jude is uh, very much influenced by the writings of Enoch. Enoch would have known something about this, being an antediluvian, which means before the flood. All the angels which kept not their first estate, he says in Jude 6 and 7, but left their own habitation, habitation, remember that word, they left their own habitation, they left their first estate, they left their own habitation. These angels left their first form. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.2, New King James Version. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Now, this word habitation, according to W. Vine's Expository Dictionary of New Testament Words, means figuratively of the spiritual bodies of believers when raised or changed at the return of the Lord. In other words, it's a spiritual body. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own spiritual bodies. They changed their form. Now I know some people have issues with this because Jesus taught that when they ask him, about whose wife will this woman be if her first uh, seven husbands died in, in the resurrection. And he says, you, you do not know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says uh, that it'll be like the angels, and the angels don't marry nor are they given in marriage. And there was no need for them to because they did not have mortal bodies and they did not need to procreate their race because God created enough of them to last forever. So... Mankind was different. But the angels that are righteous did not leave their habitation. It was because angels left their habitation that they were able to do this. And so the righteous angels were not able to do it because they never left their habitation. But these first angels did leave their habitation. They did leave their spiritual body. That's what the scriptures say. Now I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 3. And we're going to go to verses 18 through 20. And I uh, want you to pay careful attention to this. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. This is New King James Version, 1 Peter 3, 18. That he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit. By whom also? By what? By the Spirit also. He went and preached to the spirits in prison. Those are not people. He maketh his angels spirits. Spirits without any other 
uh, additional description, refers to angelic beings who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah. We read about that. That was Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. While the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. Uh, Jesus uh, went and preached to these angels who were disobedient. Uh, they are now locked in prison because they changed their form, and that's why it was shut down. These angels continued to do this. They did it even after the uh, flood. And they were taken when they changed their form and thrown into a place called Tartarus. There aren't any human beings in Tartarus. It is the lowest hell and it's a compartment of hell in the lower parts that is only for fallen angels. Now, Peter talks about this again. And it's Second Peter chapter 2 verses 4, 5, and 6. Let's take a look at it. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. Now, let's think about this for a minute. There are angels loose right now with Lucifer. Satan is one of them, and he has other angels who fell with him, but they're not these angels who fell. Book of Revelation talks about those fallen angels that are operating with Satan in the outer atmosphere around the earth, they are eventually thrown into the surface of the earth and can't get into the heavenlies anymore. So there are fallen angels still operating in the planet, but many of them who sinned are not. They were thrown into that place that Jesus uh, dealt with them in. And we read that in 1 Peter 3. All right. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into change of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, so that links them to those fallen angels before Noah's time and during Noah's time, but save Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, and bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And so what it says here, is that God dealt with those angels by locking them up into prison. Why? Because they changed their form. Now, when we go back to Genesis chapter 6 and we look at the story of Noah, there's another little clue here. The Bible says that Noah found grace, Genesis 6, 8, in the eyes of the Lord. And it was because of his heart was right. And he was a God follower. He wanted to walk with God. He was a God seeker, called on the name of the Lord. Then it goes on to this. This is the genealogy of Noah. Now, now this is interesting because it would seem to suggest that Noah somehow had salvation because of who he was related to. And that's not what the scripture is saying. It says that this is the genealogy of Noah he was a just man that's spiritual. And, and that word always has to do with a spiritual uh, characteristic. He was a just man, but here's a word that does not refer to a spiritual uh, characteristic. Perfect in his generations. Noah walked with God. Now, yes, we have a word perfect and Jesus told us to be perfect even as our Heavenly Father is perfect, so it does have some spiritual connotation. That's the English word perfect. This word, however, is translated from a Hebrew word, 
tamim. And it means entire, without blemish, whole, undefiled, without spot. You can see that in Strong's and in Gesenius, uh, two gifted Hebrew scholars. Here's where you see it again. Exodus 12.5, your lamb shall be tamim, without blemish. That is not talking about a spiritual characteristic. It is a physical characteristic. Numbers 19 and verse 2, a red heifer you take, without spot, tamim. So these words describe a physical condition. Noah was a just man and without blemish, without spot in his pedigree. That's what was going on. And so this fallen angel activity had begun to permeate a good deal of the population of the earth. I wouldn't say that Noah was the only person on earth, but he had this rare combination of being pure genetically, without blemish, but also he was just. And he walked with God. And for those reasons, he was found worthy of being saved and redeemed from this flood that was to come. Now, for God to send a flood like this that would destroy the population of the earth uh, and many of the animals of earth. Now, they were preserved through the ark so they could start again and repopulate, but still there would have been uh, tens of thousands, if not millions of people and millions of animals that would have perished in this flood. That's a serious thing with God. God doesn't like to wield the flash water like a lot of people think. He's very long-suffering. I, 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 I'm amazed at how much space God gives to people to repent. There are a lot of people that I would have pushed the button on a long time ago, and uh, God gave them grace. And you know what? Many of those people at the last minute repented. And uh, so that thief who was on the cross who repented to Jesus, you, you know, I'm sure there were people who suffered because of him, who lost property to him, who were wanting to see him die and die hard. And you know what? Uh, God had mercy for him. So God sees something about people that we can't see. And he is long-suffering. So if God released the flood, it is because he had to. He got backed into a corner. Same thing at the Red Sea. If God had not stepped in to deal with Pharaoh, if there had not been a crashing down of the waters on top of Pharaoh's army, God would have had to deal with him later because he was going to destroy the children of Israel. Now, if he destroys the children of Israel, guess what? We all die because they are the ones carrying the seed that would eventually bring about the Messiah. And so the salvation of the world is tied up in those people who cross this Red Sea on dry ground. So God chose, because he was backed into a corner, his people were backed into a corner. God wanted to kill Pharaoh, he killed him on the day one. Moses walks in and says, let my people go. Boom! He hits the ground with his rod and every Egyptian dies, including Pharaoh. Now I'll walk out the door. But God didn't do that. God knew they were deceived by these demon gods, and so he made war on all those demon gods in order to get them to turn. And you know what? There were a large number of Egyptians who did, and they did leave in the Exodus, but not Pharaoh. So God is long-suffering. Now, Noah, the Bible says, was a preacher of righteousness. You know what his preaching was? It was his ark. That was his platform. 
you know, a sports figure has a platform that's outsized. I mean, it's amazing to me. I saw this with some NFL guys in our church who had an amazing platform to share their faith because they played football in the NFL, and young football players in high school wanted to listen to them. Actors, the same way. Heroic figures, the same way. They have outsized uh, platforms that uh, give them an opportunity to proclaim their message. The ark was an outsized platform for Noah, and in that way he preached righteousness. Now I want you to think about this for a minute. There was no rain in the ancient world. It didn't happen until the flood of Noah. That's another story altogether, and I won't get into all the, the physical dynamics of why it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, but it did. But the population of earth had never seen rain before, and here's Noah building this huge boat, at least 450 feet long, maybe longer, and uh, he is uh, no doubt a celebrity. People have come from far and wide. This thing did take a number of years to build. And so uh, there were likely people who worked on the ark that were not saved by the ark. And so there were people who saw this and came by and watched it. And the very fact that he was building this ark is what propelled his message. Why is he building this boat? Why would he do this? Well, he says there's a flood coming. Well, it was all over the earth. Everybody in the area knew there was a flood coming. And this wasn't just something that happened for one or two years. This happened for dozens of years. And so everybody in the area knew there's a flood coming. They may not have believed it, but they at least had the thought. And not one person had a pricked conscience about any of this. They all rejected it. So Noah, in that way, was the preacher of righteousness. Well, Jesus said that his return for his church is tied to the flood of Noah. How? We're going to talk about that in our next section. See you then. Welcome back. We're going to get into what Jesus and the New Testament had to say about the coming of the Lord. And we're going to take it to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Unfortunately, most pastors and preachers only cover this when they have to do a funeral. I think we ought to have a good understanding of it outside of funerals because it is so incredibly important. God is not going to leave death in an ascendant position. In other words, right now, death is killing redeemed people. Redeemed people are still dying physically. We do not suffer pain. It is a blessing to go be with the Lord. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints, but death is still not the original condition. For God to leave it alone would suggest that redemption was not complete. I'll tell you this, for God to leave it alone says that the work of the first Adam is greater than the work of the second Adam. Now death has not yet been totally defanged and destroyed, but it's going to come. Now listen, if there is no resurrection of the dead, 1 Corinthians 15, 13, uh, then Christ is not risen. 
And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith also is empty. So this idea that we can live for Christ and the resurrection of the dead really doesn't matter, uh, that's baloney. And that's what Paul says. The resurrection of the dead is huge. And he says later in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25-26, For he, Christ, must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Death is not under his feet yet, but it will. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of junior high school. And I always hated this. Uh, even if I knew I could win the fight, I hated it. Uh, but if someone came to me and said, meet me after school, oh man, I hated that. Even though it got my dander up and I was determined I was going to make a good showing and, and a lot of times won my fights, uh, I still didn't like it. Meet me after school. That's really what Jesus has said to the devil. Meet me after school. I'm Not yet. We can't fight right now. We're not going to finish this right now. now. Now he's already done what it will take to destroy death completely. He just has to go out uh, go ahead and serve it out. Serve out the summons and lay hold on the devil and cast him and death into a bottomless pit. That's going to happen. So I want you to see what Jesus said would happen when death is dealt with. Here are the particulars. It's not just some nebulous idea that someday God's going to fix death. He goes into detail. The scriptures go into great detail about exactly how God will deal with death. And uh, we're going to see it, first of all, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. In other words, your body cannot go to heaven and be in the presence of God because it has been corrupted. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Paul says, in other words, you hadn't heard much about this. I am revealing the particulars to you. When he says, behold, I tell you a mystery, that means that these particular details had not been shared up until this time. Certain things had been shared, but not these particular details. He said, we shall not all sleep. That means die a physical death. But we shall all be changed. Even the dead are going to be changed. He said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, that's an atomic second, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So what we see here is there is coming a time when the Lord will return with the sound of a trumpet, the dead will be raised and we will receive brand new bodies. Now listen to what he goes on to say. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades, where is your victory? I love that because what it is, it's a mockery. It's uh, mocking and, and, and dealing with uh, those forces that seemed like they were totally unbeatable. He says, the sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. 
Now, he's talking here about the rapture of the church. And he tells these people in the last verse, always remember to be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. You know, there are a lot of people who criticize the teaching of Bible prophecy uh, who suggests that it creates a prophecy paralysis. And I will agree that some people go so deep into prophecy and get so taken with it, it's the only message they want to hear. They may not be part of a local church. They want to watch somebody online all the time who's talking about Christ's return. Uh, they will go to this seminar, that seminar, every seminar in the world, travel halfway across the country to hear about Christ's return, and never do anything about it. When you are fully convinced of Christ's return, it cannot help but inform your decisions. And it will make a worker out of you, which is exactly what the Bible says here in 1 Corinthians 15. It will stir people to real fruitful action. And, you know, as a pastor for many, many years, 30 years at Church on the Move in Tulsa, I preached on prophecy all the time. And I would put the work ethic of Church on the Move up against anybody. I, you, you can't show me a church that did more works to reach people. We had a thing called Christmas Train. We're in a 17-year stretch. We ran a train through the story of the gospel and narrow gauge railroads. An amazing thing. We preached the gospel not only in message, but in hospitality and in kindness to one million people. Uh, which still continues an element of this today in what he calls Love Day. It has taken the whole city by storm in that our church goes out and has a huge impact on the city of Tulsa. And uh, it, it makes a difference. So the idea that we are paralyzed because we believe in the coming of the Lord, uh, that's, below, that's baloney. Baloney, baloney. And I don't believe that at all, and we hadn't seen that at all. Now... We are always abounding in the work of the Lord. Paul gives this resurrection that he introduces here, he gives it a name. And so I'm going to take you to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to start reading in verse 13, and we're going to find the name of this resurrection because the event has a particular name. Here we go, 1 Thessalonians 4.13, New King James Version. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those people who are asleep. The people who went on before us to heaven will come back, and the very first part of this event will be they are raised from the dead, reunited with their bodies. They are resurrected with a glorified body. For the Lord himself, verse 16, will descend from heaven with a shout. Now, he doesn't actually touch the earth. He's appearing in the clouds. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Here's the name, caught up. Now, in the English, the words caught up 
are translated from a Greek word, harpezo. And harpezo means this, to snatch, to catch away. This verb conveys the idea of force suddenly exercised. So it is a reach down, grab something very quickly before uh, the people around even know what happened. That's what is described in 1 Corinthians 15. It's in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. This is going to happen, and he calls it the harpezo. Now, that's the, the Greek word. It was translated into Latin, raptiere, R-A-P-T-I-E-R-E, which in English is known as rapture. So someone comes along and says, well, the word rapture doesn't even appear in the Bible. No, but harpezo does, and harpezo is rapture. It's just in a different language. And so the idea that Christ is coming back for the church is an old idea. Paul introduces it here, shows, us to, uh, shows this to the church at uh, Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4, and he calls it the harpezo. And it's interesting to me that he sums up this narrative right here. This is a section. This is a great place for the chapter division. And he says, therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's verse 18. Hang on to that. We'll come back to that in a minute. Now, we go on to the next chapter because he goes into what happens after this harpezo, and it is this thing called the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is very prominently mentioned in Scripture, and it has to do with judgment on the earth. And so let's begin reading in 1 Thessalonians 5.1. But concerning the times and seasons, and I would say this to you, that when we think about prophetic scriptures, you think in terms of times and seasons, not exact days and hours. And when people start talking about exact days and hours, you're going to get off because God reveals these things to us as to times and seasons. But concerning the times and the seasons, brothers... You have no need that I write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord show comes as a thief in the night, meaning a lot of people are caught off guard. For when they say, they, remember that, peace and safety or peace and security, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape I had uh, my wife had four babies, and I remember when labor started. Uh, there is no timeout. Uh, let's delay this. There's a better time later. <laughs> it isn't happening. Once they start, you're in to the finish. Uh, but you brothers are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. I heard a fellow years ago teaching saying that this idea that people should be taught about looking for the rapture is ridiculous. Uh, Jesus said he was coming as a thief in the night. Thieves don't call you up and tell you I'm coming at such and such time. No, but listen to what Paul said. You're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. It won't surprise you. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor darkness, meaning that's very dark in the world. The world's super confused. They have no idea what's going on. That's not our case. We do know what's going on. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk in the night. But... Let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. Listen to verse 9. For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through 
our Lord Jesus Christ. So the day of the Lord is a time of wrath. It's a time of punishment. But God did not appoint us to that. The Old Testament says that He reserves His wrath for His enemies. If you're not an enemy of God, then you don't have anything to fear from the wrath of God. The tribulation period or the day of the Lord, that seven years of judgment that comes after the rapture of the church, and we'll see why we think it's after here in a little bit. Uh, what we see is uh, it's not for us. We're not destined to that. So for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. Now, And I hear people saying, well, you know, we need to be purified. The blood of Jesus didn't purify you. What about all the people who died before us who are already in heaven? Do they have to be resurrected, brought back to earth, go through a little tribulation so that they can be made worthy to go back into heaven? You see, when you start teaching that we have to suffer and go through the tribulation in order to be purified enough to stand before the Lord, then you open the can of worms and you've totally twisted the gospel. The gospel is, is that we are saved by a substitute. If you remember my teaching from the previous lesson, this is why Abel's sacrifice was accepted. It was a substitute. This is why Cain was rejected. He brought his works to God and and that's why there was a rejection of Cain and acceptance of Abel. And so we see here that God wants to seize his church, take it out of the world before judgment comes. And this is how Paul closes this. He says in verse 11, Therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. You know, when you say, you know what, we're liable to have our heads cut off by the Antichrist. We're going to suffer some great things, all those things in Revelation, those are going to happen to him. How can you comfort one another with those thoughts? Uh, somebody said, well, we're running from the challenge. Listen to me. I'm not running from any challenge. I am going to experience everything Christ did for me. I don't have to die on a cross I don't have to be beaten and scourged with a whip. I don't have to do that to be saved. Why should I put faith in my own suffering to believe that I can be worthy of standing in the presence of the Lord? Do you see what a slippery slope that is? By the way, second time that word comfort appears. Now, we're going to take a look at more information about this. And it is found in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And Paul had three chapters here. Three chapters where he's talking about end times. And he's writing to the church. Now this is important. We as a church look at what was said to the church. There are a number of things Jesus taught about the end times. And I won't say that he didn't say anything to the church, but much of what he had to say was to Jews who would be alive in the end times. And so it's easy to become confused. When you read Paul, he speaks about what is happening and he tells the church, this is you or this is what you are rescued from. And he's very clear about that. All right, so let's look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 uh, through 4 for the beginning. And this is the Kenneth Wiest translation. 
Now I am requesting you, brothers, with regard to the coming and personal presence of our Lord Jesus Christ, even our being assembled together to Him. What is that? That's the rapture, the harpezo. Not to soon become unsettled, the source of this unsettled state being your minds, neither be thrown into confusion either by a spirit a believer in the Christian assembly claiming authority, the divine revelation claiming to give saints a word from God, or through a word received personally as from us, or through a letter falsely alleged to be written by us as to the effect that the day of the Lord has come and is now present. Can you believe that? There were people who were teaching. Uh, Paul said, we're in the day of the Lord. Do not begin to allow anyone to lead you astray in any way, because that day shall not come except the aforementioned departure of the church to heaven comes first, and the man of lawlessness is disclosed in his true identity, the son of perdition, who sets himself in opposition to and exalts himself above everyone and everything that is called a god or that is an object of worship so that he seats himself in the inner sanctuary of God that's called the abomination of desolation proclaiming himself to be deity. Do you not remember that while I was still with you I kept on telling you these things? In other words, Paul said I preached on this more than once. He said, I kept on telling you these things, and now you with a positive assurance that which, namely the departure of the church, the saints being assembled together to the Lord, is preventing His being disclosed as to His true identity in His strategic appointed time. For the mystery of the aforementioned lawlessness is now operating. In other words, the spirit of Antichrist is already here, but it cannot come to full effect because we in the church are here. Only He, the Holy Spirit, who is holding the lawless one down, will do so until He goes out from the midst of humanity. Now, the Holy Spirit will still work in the tribulation, but He will not work as a restrainer in the way that He works as a restrainer right now. Then shall the lawless one be disclosed in his true identity whom the Lord Jesus shall slay with the breath of his mouth and render inoperative by a sudden appearance of his personal presence. All right. Now, I want to read another thing here. And it's the third time that this has been said. And uh, it is in the latter part of this text. And it's 2 Thessalonians 2.17. Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Wow. Three times in these exhortations, and there are three of them. 1 Thessalonians 4, starting in verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, starting in verse 1. They all three conclude with the word comfort. Now let me tell you why that's critical. It is because in Genesis 5, 29, it says... He called his name Noah, saying, This one will comfort us concerning our work and the toil of our hands. What does that mean? It means Noah's name meant comfort, rest and comfort. And so every time we read anything about the end times in Paul's letters, we hear comfort, comfort, comfort. It's no wonder 
Jesus said, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. He is saying to us, just like Noah was saved through the ark, you also will be saved by my appearance to you. And that's something that we should take great comfort in. Will we go through the tribulation? No. What about people who are beheaded in the tribulation for their faith? They are part of a huge number of people who will come to faith in that seven-year period. And the scriptures talk about that. And there will be a good reason why they come to faith in that seven-year period. They will get a wake-up call, trust me. You don't have to wait for that. You can make your decision right here and right now. Well, we've got another section to cover in this. We're not done. I'll be back in just a little bit. Welcome back. We're talking about the Harpezo, the catching away of the church. We know it commonly in the church world as rapture. And the book of Revelation confirms the catching away of the church. It does it in symbolic language, but very real symbolic language. And it begins with Christ's personal words to seven different churches in Asia Minor. Now, the words to these churches are given in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And most scholars believe that these are seven literal churches that were existent in John's day that would be in what today is the country of Turkey or Asia Minor, it was, it was called then. But we also know that scholars interpret these letters as messages of Christ to the whole of the church age and that each one of these churches is representative of a certain era of the church. And I believe that also to be true, and that's a very common interpretation. Now, the word church or ecclesia appears a great number of times in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. However, when we get into the book of Revelation chapter 4 and begin to read about events concerning the tribulation, the word ecclesia does not appear, not again, until after paradise has come. And only then is the church mentioned at the end of the book of Revelation. So I believe that what we see here in Revelation 4 is veiled language, which is very common in Scripture, and it's a very uh, common method of interpretation that shadows and types are used to illustrate something that has been stated specifically. Now, if all we had were the shadows and types, we might have a problem, but we don't. We have very clear statements about the coming of the Lord and His catching away of the church. That's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. All three places, Paul talks about the catching away of the church. So we have those statements, but now, because God knew we had those statements, He will give us some symbols of how this will all happen. And you can learn a lot from symbols. And uh, that also is a common way of communicating biblical truth. 
after these things, Revelation 4.1, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. Now, when I read that, I see that God has done something different than what he did with Noah. He closed the door on Noah. He called Noah to the ark. That's Genesis 7 and 1. Once the ark was built, Noah didn't run onto the ark because he wanted to go. He was called to the ark, and he didn't go because it was raining. There was no rain when he first went onto the ark. He was on the ark for seven days before the rain began to fall, but God called him onto the ark. Now, once he was on the ark, the scripture says in Genesis chapter 7 and verse 16 that the Lord shut him in. Uh, Noah didn't have to seal the door. He didn't have to close the door. God supernaturally sealed the door of the ark. You've got a movement there. And so if the door of heaven is now open and someone has gone inside because the door was open, the idea is because the door is still open that others have the possibility of following suit. And that will happen, as we see later in the book of Revelation. Now, we talked about how that the seven annual feasts and festivals, convocations, rehearsals that God gave to the children of Israel that happened every year. There were seven of them. The fifth of those is the Feast of Trumpets. It's also referred to as Rosh HaShanah. And this is the time of year that Jewish believers were taught to get your house in order, repent of any sins that you have that might be outstanding, patch up any grievances that you might have with your neighbors, make sure that you have a clear slate. You want to enter the new year in the best possible spiritual condition. And so that was the attitude around the time of Rosh Hashanah. And the idea is that the sins of the nation are purged and dealt with once a year on Yom Kippur, which is festival number six. And that's when the scapegoat was turned loose in the wilderness. That's the one day of the year that the high priest could go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat. And the sins of the whole country were forgiven on that day. So the idea is you want to make sure you've gotten your house in order before that day comes. And so the theme of Rosh Hashanah or the Feast of Trumpets is the gates are open. Now when this door is open in heaven, it is a symbol of the Feast of Trumpets, the rapture of the church. And, and that's what we see. Now, when the door was closed on Noah's ark, there was an immediate dispensational change. He walked on the boat, God closed the door. Now, now, this is a huge thing. The whole world will be changed forever. Uh, nobody knows it yet, but it, what's amazing to me is this is such a huge event, and yet it is so low-key in the way that it's carried out. And that's what we see at the flood of Noah. It began in the most low-key way. There, there weren't thousands of people standing on the mountains making fun of Noah, pointing down at his boat and ridiculing him. Uh, he and his family went on the boat. The animals were already there, and God shut the door. When they uh, went on the boat, uh, it was very low-key. 
And the same thing will be true of the rapture of the church. People will not even realize it happened. It'll take days for people to begin to understand what will have happened. There will be searches everywhere. Trust me, the Antichrist blasphemes God, but it also says he blasphemes those who dwell in heaven. Now, why would he do that? Because he has to come up with a lie, some kind of story to explain why so many people disappeared off this planet. And there will be millions and millions in excess of a billion, I predict. So it'll be amazing. Now, what we see is the picture of this amazing feast, the Feast of Trumpets, is right here in Revelation 4.1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, come up here, which those are probably going to be the words that we hear when the rapture uh, is given and when it happens. Uh, we'll probably hear the voice of the Lord say, come up here and I will show you the things which must take place after this. Now, after this what? After what Jesus has said to the churches. I will show you what happens after this church time is finished. And that's fascinating to me. Seven churches, and seven is all through the book of Revelation. Seven is in scripture the number of fatness. It is the number of completion. Seven has no uh, planetary significance. There is nothing in the heavens that happens on a seven-day cycle. Uh, the month of 29 and a half days, that, that, that is observed because of the phases of the moon. The solar year, 365 and a quarter days, is because it takes the earth that long to make a revolution around the, the sun. 24 hours, that's self-explanatory, takes the earth that long to make a complete rotation. But there's nothing that happens in seven days. But seven is stamped upon time for us. And it is, the, it is a, a, a change every seven days. It's a new cycle. And we go through time through these weeks. Not one long unbroken line, but these cycles of seven. And so after this refers to the seven is complete. What seven is complete? The seven churches. Their time on the earth is complete. After this means this is what will happen after they have finished their course. And so that's what John sees. Now, verse 2. Immediately I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, one sat on the throne. He who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Now, what does that mean? Well, God showed the rainbow to Noah after the flood, after the flood had come on the earth and they were coming out of the boat God set a rainbow in the clouds, and so the rainbow is a symbol of the redemption is done. It is completed. And so if God in heaven has a rainbow around his throne, it means that everybody who's looking at that rainbow is looking at this is the finish of redemption. We've been redeemed. Wow. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. So their white robes represent the fact that they're righteous, and the crowns represent the fact that they are reigning. So they are in relationship 
with a higher power because all power and authority comes from God. And the powers that be are ordained of God. Romans chapter 13, you can see that. So if they're wearing crowns, it's because Messiah has given them permission to wear these crowns. From the thrones proceeded lightnings, thunderings, voices. Seven lamps of fire or lampstands of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So what do these lampstands represent? Well, these lampstands are pictures of something. And we'll get into that in, in a little bit. But uh, what I want you to see is uh, they are symbolic and the symbols can be understood. Now, this is one of the characteristics of Revelation. You will see numbers all over the place. Numbers, different numbered things appear in the book of Revelation 189 times. Now, if you go through your course of study as a believer and you want to learn things about God and the Bible and about the Word of God, and you never take the time to study the numbers as they are revealed, you can't base everything on numbers, but numbers are highly significant. And so 189 is the product of 3 times 7 times 9. Now, numbers being significant, here they go. Uh, three is the number of the Trinity. Seven is the number of a complete and full cycle. And nine is the number of finality and judgment because there are nine numbers, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. When you get to 10, it's a repeat of zero and one. So you have nine as the, number, as the, as the last digit. So nine in Scripture is always a reference to something of judgment. Uh, so it means the end, the finish. So what we see here is the end of something, and it is wrapping up. The Lord, the Trinity, and we see evidence of Father, Son, Holy Spirit working together in the book of Revelation. We see a full cycle, and all through Revelation, uh, we see these things appear in sevens. 189 occasions, different numbers. 21 different numbers are mentioned in Revelation, and over uh, 189 occasions. It's, uh, it's fascinating. So they do mean something, and they do reveal something. Now, for the Lord Himself will ascend from heaven with a shout. That's what we see here in Revelation 4. There was a voice that I heard that was like a trumpet, uh, the voice of an archangel with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. So that's the purpose of the awakening blast. The trumpet is what calls people back to life again. Now, John saw the throne and the rainbow. It means redemption is complete. Then he sees these three things, the elders, the lampstands, and he sees a sea of glass. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass-like crystal. So these are three symbolic things that he sees. Don't think for a minute that these things cannot be understood. Let's talk about the first, the 24 elders. David lets us know something about the 24 elders. He saw into the heavens that there were elders and priests in heavens in 24 courses, and he came back and after he had his vision of that, he arranged all of the Levites and priests in service in groups of 24. That means they would serve two times a year, that's 48, and then on the big feast days, they would call everybody in to the temple to serve so that they have plenty of workmen to do the big heavy days, the heavy lifting. So uh, that's uh, what we see here. This is representation of the priesthood and the kings are priests. Kings and priests go together in uh, the book of Revelation. All right, John sees these elders. 
you can't have elders without people. And so this is something I was really drawn to by the Holy Spirit, and that is this. Take a look through in Scripture at when elders appeared and ask yourself, where are the people? All right, let me read about David's coronation. First Chronicles 11.1. 1. Then all Israel gathered themselves to David in Hebron. This is when he became king. First Chronicles 11.3. Therefore came all the elders to the king in Hebron. So the people and the elders came. Uh, the dedication of Solomon's temple, Second Chronicles chapter five, verses two, three, and four. Then Solomon assembled the elders of Israel. Wherefore all the men of Israel assembled themselves unto the king, and all the elders of Israel came. And so there you have two times the elders, one time all the people. Then we look at worship. Psalm 107 and verse 32, let him exalt him or let them exalt him in the congregation of the people. That's the common people. Let them exalt the Lord and praise him in the assembly of the elders. So once again, Psalm 107, 32, you see the two groups tied together, elders and the congregation. My idea is, is if the elders are there, so are the people. Uh, the heavenly ark, uh, we see it revealed uh, in Revelation chapter 11, verse 16. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven and the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. Now there's no mention of the, of the uh, congregation here. But they are mentioned as being with the elders. We see them together throughout Scripture. So when the ark was presented in Solomon's day and taken into the temple, not only were the elders there, but the whole congregation was there. So the con where the elders are, the congregation would be there as well. Now, so these elders represent the leaders, the people who are in authority. This represents the government of God throughout the generations, not just the church age, but all of it. All right, the seven lampstands that John saw represent those individual churches on the earth. And instead of seeing them on the earth, because remember in Revelation 2 and 3, all of these lampstands were on the earth. But now that we read Revelation 4, we see them before the throne of God in heaven. So the lampstands have been called up. And what are the lampstands? The seven lampstands which you see, Jesus said to John, Revelation 1.20, are the seven churches. So he sees the seven lampstands before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4. Earlier Jesus said those seven lampstands are the churches. Here they are before the throne of God. All right. Now, there is a sea. And uh, the Bible says the sea of glass is symbolic. It is a symbolic representation of a vast number of people who are so much at peace and in complete tranquility that they are like waters where there is no ripple. And you don't get that very often. Uh, we had a camp called Dragulch USA out on a lake about 50 miles east of us now. And uh, it's about a mile wide. And every so often, and I mean rarely, there would be a day that it was so completely still, there wasn't even a ripple in the water. And across that whole mile of water, across that whole expanse, it looked like a mirror. You could, it looked like you could just walk out on top of it and uh, go to the other side. And no waves, no white caps, just, just complete placid water. And that's what John saw, except we couldn't see the bottom of our lake. It had a lot of sediment in it. And John saw this sea of glass, clear as crystal. You could see down through it. I mean, it is totally pure. 
This is a purified group of people. Revelation chapter 13, John said, I saw this beast rising up out of the sea. Well, the beast is the beast system, the world empire system that oppresses Israel. Where did it come from? It came out of the population of earth. It came out of all the ungodly Gentile nations. Revelation 13.1 is what that is to us. So what we see is that uh, a, a sea that is a sea of glass is another group of people, only these people are in total peace. Now let's keep reading about these people. Revelation chapter 5. These are people who sang a new song saying, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. And we talked about how that Jesus will come and open up the seals of this scroll which is the title deed to planet earth. This is his exercising of dominion. For you were slain and you have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now these are not the words of angels. Angels can't say that. Angels can't say you've redeemed us to God by your blood. People can, but not angels. And out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and you've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign in the earth. So this is the congregation here in Revelation 5. And they are in the presence of the elders. They're in the presence of the Lamb. They're right there. So even though you might have a question about are they here in Revelation 4, they most certainly are because in the very next chapter, these are people saying, you redeemed us. And, and, and if they're saying you've redeemed us, they're in, they're in essence saying you've delivered us from death. These are not just the spirits of people in heaven whose bodies are still in graves on the earth. These are people who've been resurrected. And then in verse 11 it says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now, listen to this. This is so potent that even the, the animals begin to get in on this. Verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and such as are in the sea and all that are in them I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now why would they do that? Because the whole earth is going to be redeemed from the curse when Jesus begins to exercise his dominion as the King of kings and the Lord of lords as the lamb who was slain, who gave his life so that we could be saved. So this door that's open in heaven, John says it's been left open. And it's left open even after the believers have come there. So that means that after the rapture of the church, there will be other people who will come through that door and go into heaven. And you can read about it in the book of Revelation. Halfway through this seven-year period of tribulation, there will be a group of people enter into that door and come stand before the throne of God that no man can number. And it will maybe even eclipse the rapture. Now, I would say that it would eclipse the rapture, maybe in living people. It's possible. But it'll be incredible. The rapture is going to be a big deal because it not only involves all the living who follow Christ, but all of those who, since the first century, have come to faith in Christ who will be resurrected from the dead. That's a significant number. Well, we live in exciting times. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. 
So even though it's tempting to be discouraged by things you see, it's tempting to be distraught over things you hear about in the news and you see the behavior of people, the Bible says when you see these troublesome things, rejoice, lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. So we're only in the beginning sequences of this. We've got four more sequences to go. And these remaining sequences are things that are happening now, things that have happened in the last 50 to 60 years, and we can track to see where we are in these end-time events by studying the sequences that happened before in the book of Genesis. He declares the end from the beginning. See you next episode. I want to thank you for watching our podcast today. And if you really liked it, would you please give us a little thumbs up by clicking on that sign down below. And then I would encourage you to subscribe to our channel so you don't miss any of our future podcasts because they're all going to be good. And if you would like to support us financially, either with a one-time gift or recurring gift, you can do that by clicking on the link below are going to MyFaithRoots.com. Thank you so much for watching this program. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. Ratings and reviews help us reach more people. So take a moment to leave a review on your podcast app and consider sharing an episode with a friend or family member that needs to be built up and encouraged in the Lord today.